Welcome to Two Dope Boys and a Podcast. I'm Michael Brooks. I'm Phil McKenzie. Two Dope Boys is a shout out from the margins. Each week we break down trends using the lens of culture to shed light on what's significant to your future and why. How you doing, comrade? Doing pretty good, man. On the road. On the road. In, in, in uncharted territory. I'm a stranger in a strange land, but everything's all good. Ever busy, dope boys. Uh, Phil is out of town on some business. And so the way it goes this week is we're giving you another dolo one because that's how way it worked out logistically uh, with the traveling and the work. But obviously, you know that we got you. Look, if... Matt does what he needs to do, and I do what I need to do, and you already know that Phil's going to do what he needs to do. We're good. So, let's get to the brand F-Up of the week, and I love this brand F-Up. This is the peak Silicon Valley, peak juicing, peak everything that is nonsense being revealed as nonsense brand F up. There's a company called Juicero, which was claimed to be essentially a revolutionary device for juicing technology. Juicing is very trendy right now. I get some juices myself at uh, the Jamaican place by me. I've got no problem with juicing a little bit. Uh, Although I don't know if doing it every day and getting that amount of sugar into your system is great for you, but that's just my brief health editorial. But Juicero promise to give you something much better than you know a mere uh blender experience or any other way that you could deliver yourself fucking juice <laughs> which was that was a custom packet that would come in your juicer with your juicer and it would basically be like and, and matt I, I i need you on this too but basically like almost like the juicing equivalent of something like blue apron like it would come with these pre-packaged perfect juice formulas and then you would grind it into the juice system and the juice system was proprietary and needed to go through a specific process in order to make the juice for you and the juice system itself actually uh the machine itself actually started at four hundred dollars and silicon valley uh backers put in about 120 million dollars into the venture and what they discovered, these were two Bloomberg reporters discovered this, and I'm quoting now from the Washington Post. Two Bloomberg dis- reporters discovered on Wednesday that you can squeeze the packets with your bare hands. In fact, there's new now video evidence that squeezing yourself produces approximately the same amount of juice just as fast, and maybe even a little faster, than using the machine. How fucking awesome is that this is amazing (laughs) you know i remember the funny thing about this company is i remember when they first announced that they were raising money for this so the failure of this was obvious you know immediately upon release number one just zero is the stupidest fucking name ever made yes so from a branding perspective, you called your shit Juicero. It sounds like something <laughs> out of an old I Love Lucy episode, like Vita Mega Mix packaging <laughs> or something. Like it's absurd on its face. <laughs> and and you know, I think what what makes this so so poignant is that is 
it's obviously a function of the systemic failure of Silicon Valley to assess reasonable products and then put their resources or allocate their resources in a way that makes sense. This, this speaks to their privilege, their obvious blind spots. And I'm sure if one was to take the time to trace their founders history in terms of who are his networks, who does he know, how did he start this company, you're going to find the same bodies that speak to their blindness in terms of who they fund, how, and why. You know, it's, it's a complete failure of asset allocation that is part and parcel of everything that goes along with Silicon Valley and the tech industry. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of those amazing and, and, and people, uh, you know, this is just this is just the sort of perfect distillation moment of a bubble, not just a financial bubble in the specific case of this company and other companies actually, I mean, Thanos promised something a lot more serious, but people have made the Thanos comparison just in the sense of Theranos. Theranos, excuse me, which claimed to have some type of revolutionary breakthrough in terms of uh, uh, medical technology. Uh, it turned out that was actually, first of all, promised something more important and was in fact fraudulent. This wasn't fraudulent. This was just, you know, apparently silly and incompetent. But people have made that comparison rightly. And I think that, you know, it, it just belies this whole myth set that's driving that industry and driving that culture. And I think we're almost getting to a point now where there's so much nonsense and so much mythology and so much hype that's coming out of the Valley that we're almost like, you know, forgetting some of the actual genuine power of some of the economic engines in there that really are playing in some ways, very positive in other ways, incredibly dangerous and negative roles in our lives. Right. Like I'm thinking obviously the biggies, you know, Google, Facebook and everything else. Um, but there is just this fantasy culture there and a fantasy culture of our, you know, market fundamentalism, this, you know, totally discredited religion that far too many people still believe in. And this is the sort of perfect peak comedic representation of that fail on every possible level from name to price point to technology. It's a real tragedy, you know, and, and, you know, I'm going to belabor this point that in a, in an industry that struggles, um, I would, I would go beyond struggle. It fails mightily when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion, not just the, the places that are, that are hiring people. So usually when one thinks of diversity in the, in the tech space, they, you know, it's highly publicized to think about how many people have Google hired, how many people have Apple hired, you know, people of color, women, what is their representation among underrepresented groups? But this is a story about where VCs and, and wealthy individuals are deciding where they're going to allocate $120 million. And that money <laughs> went to a, a ridiculous scheme I know. around juicing, something that is already <laughs> basic and, and everyone can do. And I think about all the founders, all the people of color, men and women, who are desperately trying to raise money for projects that are often many times more feasible than these flights of fancy, and they don't get funded. There's only been 
two black women founders that have raised over a million dollars from um, seed or VC investment in the entire country. You know, that Jesus, is, that is right. shockingly embarrassing at an industry that routinely throws away not a million or two, but hundreds of millions of dollars on, again, it, businesses that no investor should even think is a plausible place to put a dime, much less $120 million. And I'm off the soapbox, but it's just, it's galling to think about. We should all be on soapboxes with this. It's fucking nonsense. That's the brand F up. The brand F up always gets us to deep places. We got to get to what's up. Now we want to jump into what's up. And this is a pretty interesting concept from one perspective and maybe perhaps a little less interesting on another. KFC, home to less than real chicken. I'm kind of a Bojangles guy myself. But (laughs) KFC has launched a new sandwich called the Zinger, which is a spicy barbecue type of sandwich. And they want to launch this sandwich literally, as they say in their advertising, not only into your mouth, but into space. Mm. Um, Rob Lowe, a very famous actor with very questionable political um, ideas, is the, is the new colonel. He's a spokesperson um, for this sandwich. And KFC is going beyond our normal frontiers of strip malls everywhere into <laughs> space. And they're not sure how they're going to get the, the sandwich into space. That remains to be seen. But they're very committed to new technologies as they're, as they're quoted AI and robots and all of these, these different things. And it just got me thinking in sort of a, a broad space, not to rag on KFC too much, even though that is a pretty easy target. It's this idea of, of just adding space and technology into places that it might not be needed. Do we really need chicken zinger KFC sandwiches in space? Can space be just kind of left alone without chicken sandwiches? Like, is this the identity that is connected somehow to what they're doing? Is their chicken sandwich so futuristic that it needs space? So it left me kind of scratching my head a little bit. Yeah, it left, I mean, I agree. And I have to be honest, you know, fast food is one of those categories that uh, you got to find a really ripe angle for me to know. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's food assisted suicide, man. But at any rate, you know, I think that, and this was actually something that has been an off and on debate as, as to like, you know, is space like oceans as an example, like how do we want to govern things that are probably really, certainly in my mind, should be commons, you know, open spaces of shared human experience and maybe, you know, scientific exploration. I don't necessarily want space to be turned into a billboard. Um, and I'm not, and obviously this doesn't do that. This is far more modest. This is just kind of launching a sandwich out into space and, you know, seeing what happens. But I think... And that's where I kind of go. I'll start high level with this critique of consumerism and fast food and everything, which I do have. And then just get, though, to the level of, you know, if we're in the room and we're doing strategy for these guys, it seems to me like a, 
an idea that was produced at the breaking point of exhaustion and desperation. Um, like there's nothing really, you know, the, the thing that KFC has been doing of getting comedic actors and people like Norm MacDonald and, you know, people to play the Colonel and sort of update that image and take, you know, a guy that is an old, confederate chicken hawker and turn it into some sort of like quasi hipster you know sort of humor filled image for the snapchat age i think they've gotten some mileage off of uh and i can yeah, see their yeah. sales are up yeah their sales are up they're doing well it's it's a smart campaign and i can see why rob Lowe would fit into that lineage but the added addition of space to me just seems like you know, it's just buzz-seeking. Now, sometimes buzz-seeking is the right play, and there's a very concrete reason behind that. And if we're going off of their recent plays, what they've done with Colonel Sanders, they've been smart. But I'm not really seeing it. It seems to me like, you know, again, we're just at a wall point, and when you're at a wall, what do humans do? They try to go to space. And that comments point that you brought up, I think is, is, is key to all this. So, you know, I'm, I was trying to give him a hard time wondering about this idea of space, but in reality, you know, it's a little further out by the time people are going to be hearing this, but, you know, we just passed Earth Day. We've had um, huge marches around the country um, representing um, a return, hopefully, to real science and logic, or at least standing up for those principles. So not to make this too big a thing around a chicken sandwich, but I do think it is a, a symptom of this idea of, you know, what is space going to be? You know, when I, when I was a kid and I grew up in a generation of the first space shuttles and tragically, you know, seeing the first, you know, on the space shuttle explode, but space was always this, like you said, a place of exploration and future and possibilities. Right. And now it's seeming to become a place of either elite tourism. Mm -hmm. If you think about someone like a Richard Branson with his Virgin Galactic idea or Elon Musk with, we're going to go to Mars. And, you know, I think they are, they're less than altruistic ideas behind that. When you put in that Silicon Valley perspective that we kind of, that we talked about a little bit on the previous segment, like, let's burn this all down and then leave to go to another planet. Right. And, and, you know, I think about um, Red Bull when they had their, they launched out of, like, they weren't quite in space, but a very high stratospheric parachute jump, which I did think spoke very much to their brand. But yeah, that you know, though we, was on, I mean, that, that, was cool. that was in their space. So again, if we're, you yeah, know, yeah, I agree with you on the cultural question a hundred percent but at least i really follow the logic on that one i don't follow the logic on the kfc one yeah there was a there was a, a, a clear brand connection to this idea of taking things to the extreme and to their credit they nailed that like yes you want to talk about a dude hitting an x yes he hit an x absolutely from from near space so yeah exactly kudos, exactly um to that team but again it's this you know, it's the it's the idea of is this now going to become a place again of, like you said, billboards, 
in advertisements? You know, are we are we moving in that direction where the low hanging fruit becomes the idea of what space can be? So obviously the logistics and the technology of putting anything together is vast, but our concept of what we're doing this all for in the first place becomes really lowbrow. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I don't like the idea of playing in space and turning space. You know, I, I, I think the descent from, you know, Kennedy and, you know, the like a moonshot or even I, I rewatched or I didn't re I didn't rewatch. I watched Hidden Figures um over a vacation recently and actually is a you know just oh, a, fantastic yeah, movie. Very good, very just kind of solid Hollywood, you know, at its best, right? very well constructed, very important story and very well done movie. And going from the image of like this, and of course it's a romanticized image, but there's truth to it. It represented the new frontier. It represented something about science and exploration. Of course, it also had a military and cold war edge to it as well, but that's also the reality. And it also paid, you know, it, it did play in different ways in terms of civil rights and women's rights and, you know, and how we, perceive ourselves as a country going from that to you know pay a couple million dollars for a rocket ride and throw some chicken up there is pretty depressing <laughs> if you're going to take that rocket ride at yeah. least let there be chicken yeah there you go um, and maybe that's really the play. Maybe KFC needs to see if they can, you know, they could do some type of chicken partnership with Branson. But I, I, I just, I don't, I, 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 culturally, I want space to be an open commons, and I believe in that fundamentally. And then as a brand proposition, I don't get KFC's particular angle on this. I think they have a winning drive with getting known actors and comedic figures to play with the Colonel. I think that's smart. Uh, I, I don't get launching this thing into space. But, you know, maybe some people think it's cool. And maybe, again, if it's just a buzz mission, then, you know, mission accomplished. It's getting written up all over the place, and we're talking about it on Dope Boys. There it is. And that's what's up. So now we got to get to what's next. And we we talk a lot on this show about retail, the future of retail, um, what people want from retail experiences and uh, you know the data keeps coming in stores and retail spaces in the physical space are closing down uh, I'm quoting now from a piece that we will have linked to that uh, I believe was published on CNN brokerage uh, firm Credit Suisse said in a research report released earlier this month that it's uh, possible that more than 8,600 brick-and-mortar stores will close their doors in 2017. For a comparison, the report says that 2,056 stores closed down in 2016 and 5,077 were shuttered in 2015. Uh, the worst year on record is 2008 with 6,163 uh, uh, stores shut down. Of course, that was you know during the Great uh, Recession. So, you know, uh, and it goes on to you know say the sort of obvious targets, which is physical stores have been eclipsed by e-commerce sites like Amazon, and uh, places like J.C. Penney uh, have been a major you know sort of taken significant hits in this space. 
Also, obviously, you know, Borders went out of business several years ago. Barnes and Noble's taken a hit specifically in that book space. You know, on one hand, there are real problems with this because, you know, obviously, anytime you're talking about a significant amount of people losing their jobs, even if they're not great, you know, particularly well compensated jobs, they're, you know, they're still jobs and there's still opportunities for people to work in retail and that's going to be a problem. Uh, I do think, though, that, you know, there is a problem innately with scale, obviously, and Amazon was able to do to these, you know, retail chains what the retail chains were able to do to a lot of local and independent businesses, which is to basically just, you know, drive down prices and undercut them. Uh, But I do think from a consumer perspective, I see a lot less room in the landscape for big shitty box stores because the truth of the matter is is that if you're looking for you know ease and accessibility of delivery um and you can just order it online that makes sense for a lot of things uh i think the onus then and hopefully you know my in my ideal scenario this would be an opportunity for worker cooperative businesses small local and independent businesses but even more chain-oriented brands to start really seriously thinking about their consumer experiences and what kind of extra value you're going to bring to somebody for going out. Because the kind of, you know, as the practicality of shopping becomes something we can do virtually, I think people are going to start to maybe rethink, well, wait a second, I do want to go out and have a physical lived experience, but I want it to be a good one. Um, you know, I, I bookstores are the obvious example. If you go to a good local bookstore, you're going to get a great browsing experience. You might talk to some people who work there who know, you know, the subject matter well, and you'll find some great things. That's a better experience for me than, you know, shopping online for a book. But if I just want, you know, the best price with no hassle, of course, Amazon is going to be preferable to Barnes and Noble in terms of a user experience. So, you know, to the extent it's possible from the brand facing perspective, the onus is really to get serious about consumer experience because that's where the play is going to be for maintaining viability in brick and mortar retail. That's my kind of soapbox on it. Yeah. I think a, a slightly different direction on it. I think the, the experience you get in store, the bespoke, perspective that can be offered, whether that is by product, by service, I think is very critical. If you look at the, if you look at the stores that are closing, you, you listed some of them, it's things like Sears and VB's and JCPenney's, Payless, Macy's. You know, one can make the argument that they don't offer a unique experience. They are, right. as you mentioned, those sort of big box stores that typically would anchor a, a very large um, commercial property, a strip mall or a large um, multi-tiered mall type of experience. So those were sort of the, what would be called the anchor stores in that perspective. I think what we're seeing now in retail is almost a function of what we're seeing in the country as a function of income equality, mm-hmm. that the mm-hmm. store's, I listed and, and everyone has talked about, they largely to me represent the middle. 
you know, that sort of invisible right. middle. Um, whereas, and you're going to fail if you're in that space. If you offer everything to everybody at a middling price and service level, I think that is a losing strategy and you're seeing that in these closings. On the flip, if you are offering a premium experience and a premium product, which is what ties into the income equality, I think those stores that offer super cheap goods, you know, they don't really cater to that middle, but they're the dollar stores. They're the really cheap retail experiences. They're doing well. And on the other side of that, if you're the high-end or very bespoke experience, i.e. Apple has some of the most successful physical retail stores in the world. Right. Warby Parker is another brand that despite the fact that it's still um, niche and growing, is very successful. Even Amazon is building very specific physical type store experiences. So I think retail is sort of a, a thermometer or a gauge rather, a gauge of how the country is going. If you're poor, which is everybody, you kind of shop where you can find the biggest value. And if you're doing very well, you're wealthy, you're out there buying, you know, the latest every product. And some of those times you're going into physical stores. You know, we've mentioned Elon Musk a couple of times. You know, they recently surpassed GM as one, Tesla did, as one of the most successful, or at least from a valuation perspective, car brands. You know, they're not selling cars to everybody. They're selling a very specific experience which caters to your, maybe caters to your environmental perspective, but it all also caters to your cachet of being able to buy this 100,000 plus sports car luxury sedan that is also environmentally sound. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with all of that. And I think it can kind of be synchronized with the sort of point about, you know, getting better you know, consumer experiences in the physical end. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of that, that sort of upping the ante that way would probably overlap with, you know, maybe in some cases targeting more higher end consumers, although I think that there's opportunities to do that in a more broad based way. Um, although not in that just kind of broad aggregated middle that you're talking about, because that's disappearing. Uh, although, you know, I, I think the paradox is, is that we're, we're going along with everything else into that it, we're in extreme inequality. But then on the other hand, there's all of these different micro segments and different ways of identifying and then finding your groups and your interests. So as an example, when, you know, Whole Foods uh, designs stores that are specifically geared for lower income, younger people, but ones that, you know, have still have the taste for organic food. Um, you know, that's something where there's some sort of flexibility in that space. I think though, on the cultural trend point, there is a desire in certain communities. Like, you know, I think of where I grew up in Western Massachusetts, there. There and and granted, it's already a you know a little bit more. There's some very liberal and back to the land and environmentalist uh, elements, but you know it's a place where people are thinking really seriously about building local food systems, um, and they actually have. There was uh, some major fights uh, in terms of getting 
local food sources into schools, taking over unutilized land and, you know, using it in different ways. And I think with the advent of 3D printing, you know, there's all of the nightmare scenarios, but I think you're also going to see some genuine community interest in like, well, you know, what can we actually do with physical spaces in our own area that isn't just dependent on giving a company a tax break or, you know, becoming appealing in a certain way. So certain brands want to move in here. Um, and there is going to be that kind of interest in some type of community generated local infrastructure. Uh, and that's something I think on the social and the political level, we're going to at least need to hope can develop and is a great place for investment in social innovation. Uh, so, but I think those kind of prime three tracks are what we need to look at that from a customer service and user perspective, and also just from the economic perspective, the middling big box places that kind of serve the middle market are going to get squeezed and the places that operate in the physical space and off and not online are going to need to really deliver much more bespoke and, you know, targeted experiences and services to get people offline. Yeah. But in speaking to that point, cause I think this retail, it's like the canary in the coal mine, <clears throat> you know, you can tell a lot from what's going on with these sort of um, trends and, and closings. And I think about um, Canadian goose, you know, with they, they recently went right. public, um, I believe a week or 10 days ago by the time, Folks are listening to this and, you know, it's a store that offers again, that sort of, well, it's a brand rather that offers a very particular experience. It's a high quality coat, a retail, fairly expensive as goose down coats go. Um, but they have really fortified their brand through an online strategy while also providing the perception of a, of a very premium um, product. You know, they have fewer right. returns, right. they drive their volume online, and, and they're doing remarkably well. Right. Even though they might not be that brand that you'll find or would have found in a Sears or, a, or even a Macy's, you know. Right. And, and that provides opportunities. I think if you're a, if you're a consumer brand and you're, and you're looking for channels to drive interest, to drive sales, you have to, to really take advantage of, you know, does it make sense for me to have a particular retail presence? And if I do, what do I want that presence to look like? You know, many brands do pop-up events, you know, where we are using like Slack retail, underutilized retail, or, or just physical spaces and turning them into something temporarily where you can still drive sales, you're driving buzz. I, I think we're really seeing an opportunity to do something different, right. you know? And when I, and when I see these malls, these massive malls that used to have over a hundred tenants now having 20 or 30, they're literally ghost towns. Like what are the opportunities to repurpose these, these huge spaces that are often in, sort of suburban to quasi-suburban areas, you know, are there opportunities there as more and more people are kind of reshifting due to gentrification to you're kind of repopulating suburbs, you know, I don't have answers to all of that, but when I see these retail 
questions coming up, it, it begs the question about what are going to be those opportunities, because I don't think these trends are going to reverse. We're seeing them at a time when they're not based on uh, a significant economic recession. Right. And when that recession comes, this is going to um, this is going to speed up. You know, you're going to see this actually this trend go go faster. And, and that's where, you know, we have to start thinking about where those next opportunities are going to come from. And that's what's next. We got to get to the crates. So now we got to get to the crates. And uh, for my pick this week, I fitting this episode, I'm going to pick uh, Silicon Valley. Just launched its fourth season on HBO. It's a really funny show. Uh, I really enjoy the entertainment value of it, but it's also, um, you know, it's not radical by any stretch, but it is a, there, it, it, it pokes a, an appropriate bubble in Silicon Valley. It has good satire and also in each of the seasons, particularly the third really gets into questions about really the difference between long-term development of technology and actually building a company that creates new value versus, you know, simply getting investment, driving up a price, and then, you know, flipping a product and bailing, essentially. Um, what is the kind of purpose of a company and how does the Valley actually work? Um, and to the extent to which there's Silicon Valley mythology in it, it's used to advance plot lines or satire. It's a very entertaining show. So I'm going to go with Silicon Valley on HBO. That's awesome. I, I yeah. like that show as well. I was, I was actually flying. I think I was coming from somewhere in Europe. I don't remember where. And they had season three available on the flight. And oh, I hadn't caught it in real time. And I binge watched the whole thing, which is perfect. Got me through about half the flight because they're about 20 minute episodes. Um, and it's a and it's a great show. It's the sad thing about, or 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 I guess the funny thing about the show, is that it pales in comparison to the actual absurdity <laughs> of Silicon Valley. Totally, <laughs> like it's, 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 as absurd as that show is, it's still not really as absurd as the reality. Totally, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> right. But anyway, you know, I got one one pick this week, which is a book that I've, I've read and, and constantly find myself revisiting for particular excerpts. And, and it's just always filled with, with wisdom for me um, as a, a marketing and, and, and culture person. And it's called Understanding Media, The mm. Extensions of Man by Marshall uh, McLuhan, yeah. who is uh, uh, obviously a, a giant in the space of media and communications. And though, I don't think he purposely set out to be a, a philosopher of sorts around culture. That's how I read him. Yeah. And I think this book is one that not only speaks to the work we do ar around culture, but it's, it's largely speaking to even our, our social and political environments and just how much media in all its forms impacts how we think about the world and our place in it. So that's my, that's my crate for this week. Again, it's understanding media, the extensions of man, 
by Marsha McLuhan. Going deep. And super producer Matt Leck has a crate. Uh, yeah, my crate is oh. from 1935. It's a book by Frederick Lewis Allen, who was a New Deal liberal. Uh, the book is called The Lords of Creation. And the interesting thing about this book is it's sort of a... Uh, a tombstone. He's sort of writing the inscription on the tombstone of a sort of free market enterprise ideology that looked to be dead at that time of uh, history. And it's very interesting reading now when you see that it sort of has come back and to take over pretty much everything to read. There's literally a part where he says like, literally no one would believe that these men should have this much private power now. And we're sort of back in there. <laughs> and uh, it's a book that's, it's, it's out of print, but Mark Crispin Miller uh, released uh, through a series that's on Audible and Kindle. You can get it digitally. So I recommend that. Oh, it's fascinating. Okay, uh, join us in Detroit in May for the Sustainable Brands Conference. Phil and I are presenting there. We're leading a workshop, but it's uh, you know three days of some of the most interesting people talking about purpose, sustainability, how brands can work well with the environment and society. It's in Detroit, which, as you know, is a very interesting city and we've been covering recently. Uh, check out the show notes for more details. I want to thank super producer Matt Leck, creative director Sean Awan. Phil, brother, thank you for another journey. Thank you, brother. Looking to make my trek back north ASAP. All right, can't wait to see you. We'll be back Thursday for On Point.